A healthy church is a church that is growing into spiritual maturity in Christ. Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. Today's text out of Ephesians chapter 4, Pastor Charles will show us how the church is to grow in maturity. Today's message, Becoming a Grown-Up Church. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. Praise the Lord. Good morning, church. Would you stand and take your copy of God's Word and be turning to the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Last year, we began a verse-by-verse study through the entire letter of Ephesians. We got through the middle of chapter 4, beginning of this year, as we were in the process of becoming one church in two locations, and I turned my attention to other passages of Scripture, but I've been longing to get back to Ephesians, and today I want to pick up in the middle of chapter 4. Don't worry if you just got here. I trust the message will stand on its own. But I would encourage you. We'll be pressing our way through Ephesians, middle of Ephesians, this month, next month, God willing. And I would encourage you to read through the book of Ephesians in its entirety in the private chambers of your own praying ground. And look forward to the next weeks as Paul talks to us about how to walk in unity how to walk in holiness, how to walk in love, how to walk in wisdom, how to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then he starts meddling and talking about how husbands should treat wives, and wives should treat husbands, parents and children and employers and employees, how to walk for Christ where you live. I trust these next two months will be a rich study of God's Word. Invite somebody with you this morning. We will together look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. Let me pray first, and then I want you to hear the reading of God's Word, and you may be seated. Father, we do praise you for the fact that you are great and powerful and mighty. You've proven that definitively at the cross where your righteousness and mercy kissed one another. As your son, our Savior, poured out his blood to atone for our sins. Then you raised him from the dead with all power in his hands that we might have new life in him. Would you teach us today what it means to walk in the newness of life. Open our understanding that we may comprehend the Scriptures. Help us to lay aside all malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander so that as newborn infants we may crave the pure spiritual milk of your Word and grow thereby having tasted of your goodness. I pray for physical strength and spiritual energy to speak your Word faithfully and clearly, and as the seed of the Word is planted and watered, we look to you to make it grow and reserve for you the highest praise and full credit for all of the fruit that shall come from this time. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4, 
beginning at verse number 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and therein the reading of God's Word is this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to label the message today, Becoming a grown-up church, becoming a grown-up church. There are two key passages in the New Testament about the church. The first is Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18, where Jesus predicts the sovereign construction of the church. The second is the passage before us. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, where Paul explains how the body of Christ is built up to maturity. The chapter begins with a call to unity, verses 1 through 3. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verses 4 through 6 go on then to state the grounds of Christian unity. It's a sevenfold unity. There was one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. The church is one. Yet unity is not uniformity. There is diversity amidst the unity. That's the point of verses 7 through 10. Where Paul says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Verses 9 and 10 read parenthetically, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The church is one in Christ, yet the Lord 
has given a diversity of gifts to the church. What are these gifts? How are these gifts to function? What is the purpose of these gifts? Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16 answer these important questions. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 is one long, complex sentence in the Greek New Testament, but it makes a simple point. The point of the passage is this. A healthy church is a growing church. A healthy church is a growing church. You do know that there is no direct correlation between the size and health of a church. A church can be small and strong or big and weak. True church growth is about more than big crowds, huge budgets, or large facilities. True church growth is about maturity in Christ-likeness. Healthy churches are churches that are growing in Christ to spiritual maturity in Him. What does it take then to become, if you will, a grown-up church? What are the characteristics of a grown-up church? Verses 11 through 16 of our text teach us both the process and the purpose of becoming a grown-up church. Let me walk you through the passage. First, there is the process of becoming a grown-up church. The New Testament uses various word pictures to describe what the church is, but the primary metaphor for the church in the New Testament is a body. Verse 3 of this chapter begins, there is one body. Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body of Christ. Every Christian is a member of the body of Christ And every member has been placed in the body to facilitate the growth of the church. What does this process then of growing to maturity in Christ look like? Paul explains in verses 11 through 13. He first says the church grows up through spiritual gifts. The church grows up through spiritual gifts. Go back to chapter 4, verse 8. Chapter 4, verse 8 refers to Psalm 68, verse 18. In the victory of Jesus over death, as a conquering king over death, Jesus did two things, says verse 8. First, he led a host of captives. In the ancient world, when a king won a battle, he would cause his defeated foes to march behind him in a procession back to his homeland. The Bible says Jesus led a host of captives, and secondly, he gave gifts to men. A conquering king would return bearing gifts to his subjects. The text says when Christ won victory over death, he gave gifts to men. 
verse 11 of our text is commentary on verse 8. What are these gifts that Christ has given to his people? Verse 11 says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. The gifts Christ has given to his people are gifted people. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, both speak of spiritual gifts given to enable Christians to serve. Ephesians 4 and 11 is about spiritual gifts that are given to equip Christians to serve. The ascended Christ has gifted certain people with specific gifts and then given those gifted people as gifts to the church. There are five functions here mentioned in verse 11 that fall into four categories, four roles. I just want to walk you through them. First, he mentions in verse 11, apostles. And the word apostle just means sent one. In its strictest sense, it refers to the disciples who were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus and who were personally commissioned by him to proclaim the gospel and establish the church. In a broader sense, the word was used for any envoy the local church would send out for a specific mission. But the context, is, context here is clear that Paul is using the term in its official sense. Here, he is talking about apostles of Christ, not apostles of the church. Then secondly, he says, Christ gave prophets. Prophets are God's mouthpieces. They are not mere preachers. They are divine oracles. At times, they may predict the future, but primarily... The ministry of a prophet was to proclaim the word of God to the people of God by supernatural revelation. This is the third time apostles and prophets are mentioned together in Ephesians. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then drop down to chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says that the mystery of Christ was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Paul is clear that the apostles and the prophets had a foundational ministry in the early church. Friends, how many times do you lay a foundation for a building? Only once. The apostles and the prophets guarded and guided the infant church until the New Testament canon was complete. Hear the next sentence very clearly that I'm about to say. In light of the fact that we have the completed revelation of God's word, we do not need apostles and prophets in the church today. The Word of God is sufficient. You want to hear God speak? Read your Bible out loud. 
I say this with full weight of whatever credibility my doctrinal convictions have with you as your pastor. If you run in, if you meet somebody who's calling himself an apostle or a prophet, run. Thirdly, he mentions evangelists. Evangelists were heralds of the good news of the saving work of Jesus Christ. In Acts 21, verse 8, Luke calls Philip the evangelist. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Paul instructs Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. Outside of those references, we don't know how the evangelist functioned in the early church, except to say this, they functioned in the church. They are mentioned here in a list of spiritual gifts given to the church. Presumably, they witnessed to the lost, but Paul mentions them here as gifts to the church. He says the church needs evangelists. Apparently, saints need to hear the gospel just as much as the world does. Then finally, he mentions shepherds and teachers. The grammar here links the two terms together in one row. They are pastor teachers. The word pastor is the Latin word for shepherd. Pastors are shepherds. The role of a shepherd, the primary role of a shepherd is to feed his flock. And the primary role of a pastor is to preach and teach the word of God. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 charges, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Paul is saying in verse 11 that pastor teachers are gifts to the church from Jesus Christ himself to equip the saints so that the body of Christ may be built up to spiritual maturity. So the church grows up through spiritual gifts, but then verse 12 says the church grows up by mutual service. Why does God give these gifted people to the church? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Here we find two responsibilities that point to a great purpose. Here's the first responsibility. It's for pastors and teachers to equip the saints. Note, he does not say that the pastor teachers are to do the work of ministry. They are to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That does not mean that pastors are above serving. It means that the primary way the church needs pastor teachers to serve is by them being ready to faithfully teach sound doctrine to equip the church. The word equip means to make fit, to make ready, to make prepared. When pastors become too personally involved in the work of the ministry, they stunt the growth of the church. The church, the members of the church, you need to learn to exercise your faith in service to others if you are going to grow to maturity. There's nothing deep about that. You know what happens if you keep eating and never exercise. 
And this is some of us in the church. We come, and I'm so glad you come, and you just pig out on the preaching. And you love the word. But you are not growing because you are not exercising your faith in service to one another. So God gives pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I hope, I hope this falls on you like good news. Because what this verse is affirming is the priesthood of all believers. You don't have to go in a booth. You don't need to find Rev to get to God. God has his hands on you. The dichotomy between clergy and laity is not biblical. We call pastor teachers the ministers. But every member of the body is a member of the body and has a ministry for Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad that God doesn't just use those who are in the pulpit? The church grows up by practicing what you might call every member ministry. Just think about how strong this church would be. What an impact we could make on this city for the gospel if every member decided, I'm going to do something to build up others. The work of ministry phrase here just refers to practical Christian service. Means you don't have to be qualified to lead. You don't have to be gifted to preach. You don't have to be talented to sing for God to use you. There's still work for you to do. Galatians 6 verse 10 says, So then, as you have opportunity, do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6 and 10 is the job description for the work of ministry in two words. Do good. You may not be able to preach, but he says you can do good to others as you have the opportunity. The pastors, teachers, equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? Look at the end of verse 12. For the building up of the body of Christ. Building up is architectural language that refers to the erecting of a building. Paul mixes metaphors here to say that pastors, teachers are given to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. The word for it is edification. You can read the Bible at home. You can sing to God at home. But why does God call us, command us to come together as a church? He calls us together because Christianity is not just about you. There's a sense in which your spiritual growth will never be facilitated as God's design until you are committed to help building somebody else up. 
Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, so let us pursue those things that make for peace and mutual upbuilding. Even better than that, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, Paul rebukes the chaos in the church. He says, so then, brothers, you got to read 1 Corinthians 14 through 26. He says, how is it that when you meet together, everybody got a song? Everybody got a word. Everybody's got a tongue. Everyone has got a revelation. Everyone has got an interpretation. Let all things be done for mutual upbuilding. Just make a note here, friends. Spiritual gifts are always given to build up others, not yourself. <laughs> gifts are not given to you for self-edification, and they are definitely not given for self-exaltation. God gifts you so that you may build up others. Spiritual gifts are tools to work with, not toys to play with. And Paul is saying that when the church comes together, in a grown-up church, people are not just showing up to get my word, to get my blessing, to get my needs met. But that there is a concern for building up others. And I pray that increasingly that will be the kind of church that we become. A grown-up church where we as a membership are not just looking out for ourselves, but we are building up one another. That the senior members are working to build up the young people. And that young people are caring and building up the senior members. And that, that married couples are not just trying to get through their marriage stuff, but are investing in single people. And then single people are loving on and caring for marriage people. That, that we're looking beyond our little demographic and being concerned about building one another up. Look at verse 13. Not only does the church grow up through spiritual gifts and it grows up by mutual service, but it grows up for eternal glory. What's, what's the end game of all of this? What, where do we get out of all of this serving one another? Verse 13 says, until we attain, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, <laughs> to mature manhood, to the, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Ultimately, what he's talking about in verse 13 happens at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But... Chapter 4, verse 1 says, you're to walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We have been called to eternal glory, and that eternal call should govern how you walk here and now. So there are three Christ-exalting goals in verse 13 that we should constantly strive to attain. First, in verse 13, there is a call to spiritual unity. He says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. <laughs> Till we all attain unity. Just make a note, verse 3 says we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
Verse 3 says there is a unity that we must maintain, but now verse 13 says there's a unity that we must attain. We must all attain the unity of the faith. The faith is the objective body of truth. It's the biblical and historic Christian faith. There can't be real unity, Paul is saying, if everybody is just picking what they're going to believe. There's got to be a unity of the faith. There's some things if you don't believe, you ain't a Christian. And he says there needs to be the unity of the faith. But this is more than just all of us affirming a, a doctrinal creed. This is deep conviction Rooted in personal devotion. Listen to this. He says, till we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge. That's a graphic word. Intimate knowledge of the Son of God. Our doctrinal understanding ought to be connected to our devotion to Jesus. You ought to want to know Jesus better. It ain't about just coming to church to go to church. You want to know Jesus better. It's not just about hearing sermons. You are, you're listening and you got your Bible and you're taking notes because you want to know Jesus better. And Paul is saying, just picture, picture a, a mountain peak, the, 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 the closer you get to Jesus, the closer we'll get to one another. This is why in his church, everything just needs to be about Jesus. There's a call to spiritual unity, but there's also a call to spiritual maturity. He says God wants you to reach mature manhood. Revival breaks out when a lot of lost people are being born again, but the fires of revival cool off when those born again people are not growing to spiritual maturity. Evangelism and discipleship have to go together. Once you're born again, God wants you to grow up to mature manhood. What is mature manhood? Paul answers in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. Listen to what he says. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish ways. There's one picture in my bedroom at home, just one. It's a picture of our son, H.B. the third. He's about six years old, fat baby with no neck. <laughs> and I moved, I moved every time I see it. We just got married, a year in, we have a child, young couple, broke, Crystal sees in the paper that uh, they're taking free photos of children. She goes and takes the picture. They're going to give you a free picture. You got to come back later. They set an appointment. We go back. This big hotel, this big ballroom, they take us behind this screen. And here is this big old picture, the most beautiful thing you'll ever see. 
in a beautiful frame, and they're going to give us a little, you know, picture. And they say, yeah, that one costs $500. And I was like, uh-uh, no way. And then I looked at my wife's face. And we spent $500. And we, we didn't have to spend. And that picture is the picture in our bedroom. And when I wake up in the morning, I, I see that picture. And it moved me in a weird way this weekend. This, this weekend, I've been switching seats with my son at times in the car, showing him how to drive. I, I'm, I'm, I have a bond with that baby of mine on the wall. But that bond is deepened. Thinking about, in a minute, that cat's going to be driving me around. <laughs> but this is how Jesus feels about you. He's glad. He, he's, heaven's rejoicing that you are born again. But he doesn't want you to stay a baby. Who One day, 30 years ago, I came down the aisle and I gave the preacher my hand and Jesus my heart, but you haven't been growing since then. He wants you to mature so that he can use you for his glory. Am I making sense? He wants you to reach mature manhood. So there's a call to spiritual unity. There's a call to spiritual maturity. But there's also a call to spiritual conformity. End of that verse. God wants us to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He could have just simply said he wants you to be like Christ. But listen to how Paul says it. He wants you to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I just meant to say, we got a long way to go. Christ is the head of the church. The body derives its life from him. The body is governed by him. The body grows in him. We're to grow up into the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's what all this is about. It's about being like Christ. Romans 8, 29 says, whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's God's purpose for your life, that you be conformed to the image of his son. If I could say it the way I like to say it, it is the will of God to have the spirit of God, use the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. <laughs> Verses 11 through 13 give us the process of becoming a grown-up church, verses 14 through 16, give us the purpose of becoming a grown-up church. Verses 11 through 13 teach us how to grow up. But then verses 14 through 16 tell us what a church looks like when it grows up. He says in these verses, a grown-up church is doctrinally sound, spiritually mature, and mutually edified. First of all, what, what does a grown-up church look like? It is a doctrinally sound 
church. Verse 14, the first result of becoming a grown-up church is negatively stated in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. When the church is not attaining the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, Paul says the members of that church are like children. Christians should be childlike. Christians should not be childish. The church is not to cater to self-centered babies. We're to no longer be children. Watch again. Paul mixed metaphors. That we no longer be children, watch the next phrase, tossed to and fro by the waves. This nautical metaphor pictures the church adrift at sea. And the storm-tossed waves drive the church from one extreme to another. Shiloh, you do know that the culture we live in is in a storm. And while the world is in a storm, the church is acting like a ship without a rudder, without a compass, and without an anchor. What's the proof that a church is lost at sea? Verse 14, you no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried by every wind of doctrine. Lord, help us not to be that kind of church that just goes whatever way the wind blows. Church needs to be mature enough to know what not to say amen to. A church needs to be mature enough to know what preachers not to listen to. A church needs to be mature enough to stand firm against the changing winds of false teaching. The church shouldn't be carried about by every wind of doctrine. And in Mark 6, 55, Mark chapter 6, verse 55, this word carried about is used to describe sick people who are taken on their beds to Jesus. That's the third metaphor in this verse. He says, this is the church this is what a church is like if it's not committed to sound doctrine. It's like a nursery of babies in an unsecure facility. It's like a ship adrift at sea in a storm. It's like an incapacitated man being carried to a place he doesn't want to go. Paul says we should not be carried about by every wind of doctrine. How does that happen? How does the church get carried away? Still in verse 14, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Please, let me say this respectfully. Paul here is asserting that there are sinister motives behind false teaching. Some false teachers just, just don't know better.
The church needs teachers who sit down and learn before they stand up and teach. But there are some who intentionally twist the Scriptures to satisfy people in the church who want junk food rather than a healthy meal. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, the time is coming when they will not endure sound doctrine. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to truth and wander into myths. May God help us to be a growing, a grown-up church that has hungry hearts, not itching ears. A grown-up church is a doctrinally sound church. It is also a spiritually mature church. Verse 14 says, don't, don't be led astray by false teachers. How does that happen? How do you prevent that? Look at verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. I wouldn't believe it if it wasn't here in black and white. He says the key to make sure you don't get led astray is you got to be a part of a fellowship where they are speaking the truth in love. Pastor teachers should speak the truth in love from the pulpit in their public ministry, but this applies as much to the pew as it does to the pulpit. A church is not a biblically regulated church just because the pulpit preaches sound doctrine. It's a biblically regulated church when there is such fellowship among the membership that members are speaking the truth to one another in love. Hear me, friend. You cannot grow to spiritual maturity if you don't have people in your life who love you enough to tell you the truth. And this is why some people come to a church like this, so that you can hide out in the crowd without ever having to be accountable to anybody. That may keep people out your business, but it'll also stunt your growth at the same time. You need people in your life who will tell you the truth. If you're taking notes, jot down Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, verse 6, faithful are the wombs of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Let me, let me translate that for you out of the CIV, the Charles International Version. It is better to be stabbed by a friend than to be kissed by an enemy. You need people in your life who won't just co-sign your foolishness. You need people who will speak the truth in love, but, watch me, truth-telling is counterproductive if you do not speak the truth in love. Truth and love must be inseparably married to one another. Watch me. Truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. But speaking the truth in love is Christianity. 
When we speak the truth in love, verse 15 says we are to grow up in every way. Note that phrase. We're to grow up in every way. No area of the life of the church should be left undeveloped or underdeveloped. There should be a total commitment to spiritual growth. We're to grow up in every way. We should grow in our knowledge about Christ. We should grow in our faith in Christ. And we should grow in our obedience to Christ. We should be growing up in every way. Let me just pull over and and just... Put a footnote here and ask you by way of application, what area of your life do you refuse to submit to the Lordship of Christ? It's not cool with God if you're getting A's in some classes and D's in others. He wants you to grow up in every way into him. Into him. Second Peter 3.18 says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're to grow into him who is the head. Grow into him who is the head. Watch me now. He is saying that Christ is not just the sphere of growth in him, but he's the standard of growth. The head. I mean, you can't grow if you are measuring yourself by the wrong standard. This is what messes it up in church. Comparison is the favorite indoor sport of the church. And I don't care how bad I am. If you give me long enough, I can find somebody who's done something I ain't done and excuse myself and say, well, at least I ain't done that. The, the problem is what other people do is not the standard. There are good and godly elders in this church, good men. But the, the pastors of this church are not the standard. Christ is the standard. There are faithful deacons in this church, but the deacons are not the standard. Your ministry leader is not the standard. Your Bible study fellowship leader, as important as that is, is not the standard. I'm saying that not to... Not to diminish anybody, but I'm saying for you to keep growing in the church, there are going to be times when you got to look past people and look to Jesus. So that when something happens in the church you don't like, you don't quit church. Don't let church, don't let crazy church folk make you quit church. They are not the standard. Christ is the standard. You need to learn how to say like Paul, I'm forgetting those things which are behind. And reaching for what lies ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I got one more verse. You got time? Of course you got time. Y'all ain't heard me preach in a month. You got to give me time. <laughs> A grown-up church is a doctrinally sound church. A grown-up church is a spiritually mature church. And then finally in verse 16 he says, a grown-up church is a mutually edified church. Verse 15 gives the sphere and standard of Christian growth. Verse 16 begins with the source of Christian growth. He says, from whom the whole body, watch me now, the 
from whom the whole body, still talking about Christ who grows the church, he is saying all the growth that happens in the church happens because of Christ, not us. Whenever I start thinking about the good things that are taking place in the life of this church, I turn my mind to Psalm 115, verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Whatever is good going on here, Christ did it all. We didn't do anything. We just keep getting in the way, and he blesses us in spite of us. We don't grow the church, Christ does. Matthew 16, verse 18 says, Upon this rock I will build my church. Yet Christ builds up his church through mutual edification of the saints. We are joined and held together by every joint with which it is supplied. In a body, joints and ligaments and muscles hold the body together and equip it for growth. So it is with the church. But every member must work properly. Every member of the church has a function. Listen to this. It is a sin against the body of Christ for you to come here every week only to spectate or receive or criticize. Some of us go to church every week, and we're not growing from it because instead of looking in the mirror at ourselves, we act like we're sports center analysts. We just rate the service. We talk about how the preacher did, how the choir did. The real question is, how did you do? You have work to do, and when Every member is working properly and makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Final word, and I'm done. Verse 16 ends by saying that when all the members of the church are working properly, the church will build itself up. Self-edification of the body as a whole in love. This is the third reference to love in this chapter so far. Verses 1 through 16 is a call to walk in unity in Christ. But really, all this walking in unity, all the stuff he's saying is, he's just simply saying this. We got to love one another. Verse 2, rather verse 3. Nope, verse 2 says we're to be bearing with one another in love. Verse 15 says we're to be speaking the truth in what? Love. And now verse 16 closes the whole passage by saying that when every part is doing what it's supposed to do, the body will grow so that it builds itself up how? In love. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is about unity, but Paul begins and ends by calling us to just love one another. Remember what Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35? A new commandment that I give you, that you what? Love one another. How? As I have loved you. 
By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What does this look like in practical terms? I thought this morning about trying to, trying to get a list of applications of stuff we ought to do. But instead, let me just, let me just offer one way we could start doing this. Just one piece of homework. You game? It's the last verse of the chapter. What are the, what's some simple steps we could take to start growing up, becoming a grown-up church, practically? In verse 32, Paul ends the chapter by saying, hold on to your pew. Be kind to one another. Is that so hard? Be kind to one another. But to do that, you got to be tenderhearted. What's tenderhearted? I don't know. It's just the opposite of hard-hearted. <laughs> you can't be kind if you're not tenderhearted. And why do you need to have a soft heart toward others? Listen to this. Next phrase. Forgiving one another. Oh, no, HB. Mm-mm-mm. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they said. How, you don't, how in the world can I forgive them? One more phrase. As God in Christ forgave you. I know your business because it's my business. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Nothing we can do to merit God's righteous favor. We're condemned sinners who only deserve eternal punishment. But instead of sending us to hell, God sent his only son to live a righteous life that we couldn't live if he gave us a thousand chances to try. Then he died on the cross, the death we should have died, with all of the wrath of God for every sin you've committed, I've committed, past, present, and future. The wrath of God against all of that sin was poured out on Christ so that without charge, he could freely forgive us and give us the gift of heaven at the expense of his son who did nothing wrong. You and I are freely forgiven by God. If God did that for you. Who are you mad at? It's time to grow up. I'm finished. God be praised for his work. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., if you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.